0: of singing uh, so good for our souls, Lord. And We thank you that you have released our tongues to sing praise to you. And they're meaningful, Lord. The lost can sing, but whether it is praiseful to you is dependent on their relationship with you. We know you have set us free from our sins, and so our worship is dedicated to you, Lord. And you are the center of those things. Thank you for each and every one that is here. We pray for those. So many are on vacation, enjoying spring break. Um, Lord, we ask that you would keep them safe and return them to us. Lord, we're thankful for those who went through surgeries and uh, appointments and treatment this week, and you've brought them through. Many of them, Lord, and you've given them strength. And some are even here today, and we praise you for that, Lord. Father, well, other members of lost family members this week, and. They are suffering from the loss of loved ones, and I pray you, Lord, you would comfort them. Lord, we thank you that your word of God is what we stand on, both here, our missionaries, all those we link arms with around the world, and we thank you that we can now turn to that now and find great blessing and great joy in the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Luke fifteen is our text. I am doing a little hiatus from First Corinthians just to encourage us. In that we have a God of joy and he finds great joy in the recovery of sinners. In the recovery of the lost. I was thinking about some of the hymns that I grew up with. And Fanny Crosby, of course, we most of us have a little bit of age on us, know her. She was the great hymn writer of the 1800s. She was stricken with blindness. But she had a constant pursuit for contentment in Christ. And this is what motivated a lot of her writings, poems, and later put to music. She said this on one occasion, answering somebody about her blindness. She says, Oh, what a happy soul I am. When I saw that quote, I thought, What a great quote. How many can say, Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, listen to this, I am resolved that in this world, content I will be. What a great statement. Are you resolved to be content in Christ? One of the ways she did this and found her contentment was joining in Christ in the pursuit of the lost, the pursuit of those who were away from God. She wrote her great hymn, Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying, Snatch Them in Pity from Sin and the Grave, Weep over the Arian, Lift up the Falling, Tell them of Jesus the Mighty to Save. Verse 4, she wrote, Rescue the perishing. Duty demands it. Strength for the labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way. Patiently win them. Tell the poor wandering a Savior has died. And then, of course, the chorus. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. That hymn just worked its way into my thoughts as I studied this passage to prepare today. I want to give you a couple of thoughts as we work our way into these parables. There's three of them here. I want you to see, one, first of all, the foremost, the simplicity of the teaching here. The parables are often simple. simple. Christ is, is the common denominator within them. And he uses common and simple everyday situations, particularly in their culture, to help drive his point home. You know the first parable. We're starting in on this today. It's a shepherd who lost 100 sheep. Excuse me, who had 100 sheep and lost one of them. The second one's a woman who lost 10 coins and lost one of them. And then there's the third who is a father who has two sons and he lost one of them. And it's important to understand these in their cultural settings. One of the things that we see today is there's a rush to modernize everything in the Scriptures. As Bible teachers, we take God's Word... um, seriously. And, and one of the things we do is we take the people, as we teach it and study it, we take them back to God's Word, we take them back into the context versus trying to make the Bible fit in every modern-day situation. I think we endanger the interpretation when we rush to that. And th- listen, the power of God's Word is in the, the grammatical, the historical, the literal translation of the scriptures, that's how God wrote it. And so when we study these things, we, we do ourselves a great uh, honor to look at them in their historical setting. And we make sure that we understand this before we run to application. Application is extremely important. Certainly at the end of studying God's word, we must make an application to our lives. But the problem in the modern day church today is everything is pragmatic, And so there is this selfishness that comes at the text. What do you have for me? What do we have for me today? And they miss the glory of the person of Christ often because we fail to handle the text rightly. And so as we study parables, it is our job to first understand the parable first and then apply it to our life. And that's what produces worship. You worship when you see the greatness of Jesus Christ, just as you've done this morning. Not the greatness or the great need of yourself first. Do we want to know truth? Those are good questions. Are we captured by the person of Christ as you look at this parable? Or do you want some quick fix to the problems in your life? They won't come that way. They come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the key is to look at the simplicity of the Scriptures, observe the truth in them, rightly interpret them, and then apply them to our lives for the glory of God and the blessing of others. How is this going to affect me as I relate to others within the church? Now, it's important for us to recognize that Christ is in the middle of his earthly ministry here. Luke 15 falls into a slot where he has now moved away from his home territory. He was there in Luke chapter 4 ministering to his home uh, where he was raised at. And there he was rejected. You know that in chapter 4. And eventually they tried to throw him off a cliff there and he moved away from Him. But he has now been moving methodically closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer particularly to the cross. And there's a clear methodical movement of Jesus. Now, Jesus' purpose for seeking and saving the lost and giving his life for a ransom is what he does throughout this section. Luke chapter 19, a few chapters ahead, he says, "...for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life for a ransom, this is his goal. And the more we study this middle section of his ministry, he's really pushing forward. He's pushing hard for people to understand he is there to rescue them. He is not there to be their healer. He is not there to feed them and make life on earth perfect. He's there to save them. So their eternity is perfect. That's what he's after, and we see this throughout these parables. Now, it's also important to recognize that the Godhead loves to save. That's who our Godhead is, right? The Father, the Son, the Spirit. They jointly work together in perfect unity and the perfect divine plan of God to draw people to save them. I've said this many times from this pulpit. God is in the business of saving people. That's what he does. He saves people. And we love it. And we see the effects of the Father laying down the plan of salvation for our own lives. Before the foundations of the world, he knows you. He sends his Son who executes the plan absolutely perfect. He's the perfect atonement for our sins. And then the Holy Spirit plants that truth in our hearts, regenerates us, and causes us to be saved. And so salvation is the true expression of the character of God. This goes all the way back to the garden. In Genesis 3.15, there you see God promising that a seed will come who will crush the head of the serpent in order to save people from their sins. And then throughout the Old Testament, it's filled with promise after promise of a coming Savior that through His blood He will rescue, He will forgive their sins and return them to God. There's all kinds of types and events and illustration. In Isaiah 53, tri- type portrayals of a coming shepherd, a coming one who is not only a shepherd, but also the lamb who will lay down his life in order to save his people. You can't help but think of the promise at his birth, right? There, we're given he is given the name Jesus, right? His name will be Jesus. And, and we know that's a root word. That's a root word from the, uh, the idea of Jehovah that comes out of that Hebrew, that he's a savior. And so even his name marks that. The angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, "She will bear a son as he tells her what's happening, as he tells uh, Joseph what's happening with Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus." And then here's the statement, "For he will save his people. He will save his people from their sins." And the angels put on a, quite a display of joy, didn't they? That announcement where was great joy at his birth. And that reflects the joy that's in heaven. When we see those angels with great joy announcing the coming of the Savior, they're reflecting what happens in heaven in regards to salvation. Luke chapter 2, those angels show up and they say this, I bring you good news of great joy. The good news is full of great joy which will be for all people. Isn't that an amazing statement? It isn't just for the Hebrews. It isn't just for the Jews. It's now for everyone. God's going to crush the cultures of the world as he draws people to himself. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a what? A Savior. That's the announcement. A Savior's coming, and they give glory to God in the highest, son and peace on earth with men with whom he is pleased, full of joy, connected to the Savior. God loves to save. Some of the verses we first learn when we are Christians, for God so loved the world, right? He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then the next verse, verse 17, is such a key for God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. He's going to do that later. But that's not His first advent coming. His first advent is this, you know this, but that the world might be saved through Him. Our God's a Savior, isn't he? The apostles join in and they are gripped by this term Savior. When you study them, it just comes out of them in so many ways. In fact, one of the things I noticed this week as I started tracking down this idea of Savior throughout the New Testament is I see it often as the apostles are teaching the next generation of preachers and pastors to learn the word Savior. Here, let me give you, for instance, 1 Timothy, this great letter written to Timothy as Timothy has returned to Ephesus straightened straighten out many problems. He starts the letter out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment, listen to this, of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ who is our hope. Chapter 2, verse 3, this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Drop down to chapter 4, verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Isn't that amazing? God is a Savior of everyone, right? I mean, every day he saves people in a physical sense. He gives the sun comes up, but that sun doesn't come up and that fades away somewhere we die and freeze to death. I mean there's so many ways God shows his saving common grace, but he especially saves the believer. He is our savior. Do you use that term when you speak of him? He is my savior. Many times in the early years of cowboy and walk you know riding with guys and the language was so poor and so so often used Jesus Christ name in vain and I would say hey could could you take it easy on my savior. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, I said either you know Jesus because I keep hearing you use his name or you're blaspheming my savior's name. Can we talk about him and why he's so special to me? He's my savior. Paul doesn't just do this with Timothy, he does this with Titus, another young man that he sent to Crete. Titus chapter 2 verse 10, he says that they would adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. He tells them, teach them, teach the older men, the older women teaching the younger men and the and the younger women, teach them to adorn God and adorn Him as Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then probably one of... Um, the most sweetest verses to believers is Titus 3 4 through 5 uh, and 6. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. It's not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It starts out when the kindness of God, our Savior, appears. It ends when Jesus Christ pours out his kindness on us as our Savior. Our Godhead is our Savior, isn't he? We see that throughout the scriptures. Well, Peter, John, and Jude want to get in on this. Peter begins his second inspired letter this way. Simon Peter, a bondservant, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith, listen to this, he doesn't have some greater faith, receive a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how he starts the letter. Here's how he ends it. Second Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our God, or excuse me, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. John does not want to be left out on this, First John 4, 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. See this term? Jude finally ends his great benediction. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, but verses 24 and 25, this beautiful benediction. You've actually heard me use this in closing prayers. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, uh, isn't this all coming together? Savior, great joy, all this stuff. You keep seeing it in all these texts. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forevermore. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 because I couldn't help my mind slipping to this text because I think this is the culmination of the, the elect saved before the throne of God all bursting out in praise. And though the word Savior is not used here, I think it is the expression of the saved to their Savior, right? And, and what God does is he gives us a glimpse into the future. So as I read this text, as you follow around, this is you and me. This is us before the throne of God. Look at verse 9, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they, that's us, sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. Nobody else was worthy to look into the plan of God in this way, only Christ. For you were slain, now we know it's Jesus, right? And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Here we are, the myriads of God's elects around the throne. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is the expression that's now coming. Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the thrones and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them who are myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. That's a Greek way of saying innumerable are the elect before God. And look what comes out of him, saying with a loud voice. See, this is how we respond to our Savior as we are collected together before him. Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea, all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped him this is the result of a savior this is the expression of the saved and i sat there and read this passage this week and wept because that's me and that's you if you've been saved And we look forward to this day as we go through a time of of tribulations and trials in this life. We live in a fallen world. We still see God as our Savior. And we still release that. But there will be a day when we will sing with the many on high. Christ gives many parables uh, throughout his ministry on earth that resemble the teaching of one who saves. It's an essential part of Christ's parables. But in these parables, as we study them, we begin to learn that he uses these parables to do two things. One, he he uses them to harden hearts of those who reject him, particularly of those who don't need a Savior. There's a a difference in two people in the world, right? You've heard me say this many times. There's people who desperately need of a Savior, and there's people that don't need one. So, he uses these parables to harden the hearts of those who don't need a Savior, and he uses them to soften those who he's drawing, to whom he's calling, whom he's saving to himself. Luke chapter 8, he's already said this earlier. He, Jesus, said this to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. You're here today, and you're hearing God's word, and guess what? You understand it. You're actually, I hope, sitting there and applying it to your life and going, I do have a Savior. That will be me in Revelation 5. I, I trust that's happening because God's opened your mind. But the rest of the verse says this. But to the rest, it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, think about this. The hard hearted certainly can understand a shepherd, they can understand a lost sheep, they can understand a woman who lost a coin, they can understand a father who lost a son. But it is the fact that they are blind and deaf to the true understanding of the parable's spiritual significance in their life. They cannot see it. They do not find joy in the things God finds joy in. And namely, the recovering of the lost. So the parables really are irrelevant to them. As we highlighted it last week in the first two verses, they wanted nothing to do with these sinners and tax collectors. Look with me at verse two verses. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him and listening to him. But, but the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now this causes this religious elite here. They, they, they miss the moral and the theological truth of these parables because they want nothing to do with these people. And, and Christ is going to pull them into this, into this parable in such a way that they have to think of themselves as a shepherd, which they think are terrible people. And so they look at this and they go, we, we're neither shepherds, we're, we're, we're neither referred to as dirty sheep, they, they treated women as possessions, and they would never give an inheritance to a wayward son. That would be the last thing they would do with their money. And yet they're standing there with Christ putting the spotlight on them because they do not desire the things God desires. And they miss the moral and the theological implications of these parables because they're spiritually blind, they're spiritually deaf, and they cannot see and hear what our Lord is doing quite frankly, they don't see anything about the kingdom of God needing repentance. They deserve the kingdom of God. In fact, if there's someone first in line, it would be them to have the kingdom of God. And So they would never repent in order to gain that kingdom. And they certainly don't see Christ as the one who's a seeking shepherd, a seeking woman, a seeking father. They don't see him as that. And they don't see the joy of the Godhead. They don't see the joy of the angels. They don't see the joy of the redeemed. And they certainly don't see the results of the seeking Christ. So the gospel is irrelevant to them. They miss the fact that the parables are an invitation to salvation. Christ is inviting the lost to himself. and They want nothing to do with it. But these parables tell us how God in all of heaven responds in celebration. As one is restored. Please don't miss that. Don't don't miss this parable. (laughs) These parables. This is about a God who is showing us his expression of joy when the lost, when the fallen, when the sinner repents. He expresses that. And that brings us back to that central cross-reference I gave you last week. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Or were your eyes fixed this week? How often were our eyes pulled away from being fixed on Jesus? Maybe something you're bothered by or something happened or something frustrated you. Something didn't go the way you expected it to go. How often were our minds and our hearts and our spiritual eyes pulled away from the Lord Jesus Christ? But the wonderful thing about that is that did not detour Jesus because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author of it. He owns it. He penned it. We we sing a song that our names are written on his hands. He's the author of that. He's the perfecter of it. We could never perfect our faith outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't faith your way to God. Faith comes from the hearing of the words of Christ. Faith is a gift from God, and so he is both the author and perfecter. But then remember this, who for the joy, the joy of saving people, he endured the cross. That's just a profound statement. The joy of saving the loss, he endured the cross. That was what was on his mind. we, We read the narrative in Luke 23 and we go, wow, what have they done to our Lord? And outside there's blood and death and agony and thirst and And all of that, mocking, all that's going on. But inside our Lord, there's an experience of joy that we probably can't get our minds fully around. Because he's accomplishing the work of the Lord. And when he makes that statement, it is finished. He enters into the fullness of the joy of God. I accomplished what you said. The last part of that verse says, despising the shame." I wrote my notes because I just want to get this in my mind. He thought nothing of all of the shame that was thrown at him because he was relentless to save me. Anybody ever shame you? Anybody ever speak ill of you? Have you had your feelings hurt lately? It's hard, huh? It's not fun. Our Lord thought nothing of that that de- the word despising to think nothing of it he saw their mocking and the shame that they threw to them threw at him as nothing compared to the joy he had in rescuing us i love that cross reference verse so clearly we can say with those who have been saved we rejoice with you god we rejoice with you But there are those, and we're going to see that in this text, that there are those who would not rejoice with Jesus, that he was coming to rescue. And so as we study these parables, the goal of these parables is to show us the things that God loves and ask us, do we love, do we find joy in what God finds joy? And I think Jesus is drawing a clear line in the sand. And he will enrage those who oppose him from here on out all the way to the cross. But it'll bring great joy and comfort to those who have been rescued. I find great joy and comfort that Jesus saved me. Well, let me encourage you with just a couple of thoughts this morning. The verse, the shepherd who rescues and rejoices. What I did here is I just took four main verbs out of verses 3 through 7. And I want to just kind of focus on the actions and what those verbs, what those terms mean and how they take place in the story. Look with me at verses 3 through 7, as we unpack this parable. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, For I have found the sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, the first verb I want to focus in is on the word lost. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Who, what man among you, knowing that one is lost, does not do everything possible to go find that one. Well you see in both verse 4 and then in the next parable the coin in verse 8 Christ draws them into a story through asking questions. He is the king of question askers, right? He loves to ask questions cuz he brings them into his turf. He brings them into the story in a unique way. And clearly his audience I think in this particular parables is not so much the tax collectors and sinners and though they're benefiting from what he is doing in their life his target is these pharisees and scribes and notice he phrases the question again to draw these religious elite and make them part of this story make them morally responsible for what they do or don't do with the lost you see that notice he uses the phrase what man among you (laughs) i think his goal is to expose they have no desire to save And in great contrast, Jesus comes to this earth to seek and to save sinners. He searches for them. He sees them. He finds them. He loves them. He forgives them. He rejoices over them and gives them eternal life. What a great contrast between these Pharisees and scribes. It is the loss that Jesus is after, but the Pharisees are after building their own kingdom. There's such a contrast here, isn't there? And though the word shepherd does not appear in the text, it's clear that the parable is about a shepherd, isn't it? Now immediately, immediately, this would cause these religious elites to take great offense. They not only hated tax collectors and sinners, they hated shepherds. They were not in love with them at all. They saw them as the lowest people of the dirt. dirt. They, They made sure that it was clear that they were called outcasts they were classified as a group of unclean people, unredeemable. They believed they were to never be trusted. They passed rabbinical laws that would never allow a shepherd to ever give testimony in court because they deemed them untrustworthy. And so from the beginning of this story, and this makes me smile just a little bit, Christ is already offending them. They, he knows They know he's speaking of a shepherd. And he says, what man among you would not do this shepherding act? We saw earlier, it was the shepherds that God chose to announce the coming of the birth. Isn't that amazing? And here in this parable, we see the illustration of a shepherd who goes after the lost. Certainly they would have had an understanding that God has a shepherding type of Uh, person, right? They would have understood in some way uh, Psalms 23, we'll look at that in a little bit here, Um, but but they would never see themselves with earthly shepherds in fact, this is what I think really grabbed my attention when I began to think about this, is they have become like their captors back in Egypt, let me show you this, Genesis chapter uh, 46 Genesis 46 Joseph has provided for the family. He's now brought the entire family, all 70 of Jacob's household, um, into the nation of Egypt. He has provided for them in a land of Goshen. And now he's bringing them in front of the ruler, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt. This is the context. Joseph is concerned how pharaoh is going to respond to Jacob's family. Well, along with me, uh, Genesis chapter 46, verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their livestock and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. We both we and our fathers, that that you may live in the land in Goshen, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now, isn't that interesting? When when we look at what Joseph is doing, is Joseph is saying, continue to tell them that you're a shepherd so he'll set you apart somewhere. Because shepherds are loathsome to the Egyptians. So God uses this shepherding role that Jacob's family had to move them into a a land of Goshen where they're very protected. They're loathsome to them, so they're not gonna bother them. They're there gonna grow in that land of Goshen. But now as we fast forward to the parable and we now come to the shepherds, it's the Pharisees who are now distancing themselves from the shepherds. Isn't that interesting? they become like the rulers of Egypt. See, this is where self-righteousness takes you. And this is the problem when Jesus says, what man among you, he's now bringing them into this situation that they would never be caught dead in. But they have to now think through what the Lord is saying. Now notice there's a hundred sheep. This man is either very rich or in, probably in many cases, it's a combined hundred sheep of, of a certain village, a family that lives together that has combined their sheep. These sheep are very valuable in this early time, this ancient time. They produce endless supply of wool. They, they produce an endless supply of milk. Uh, they produce lambs, which are the offspring of them. They provide meat. There's this constant cycle of livestock and why you take care of them and if this is one man's this is a significant loss you losing one of those would be a significant loss when we raise cattle we know that we could get 7 to 8 calves out of that one mama cow throughout its lifespan and every one of those produced tremendous amount of income just one of them for our family and so the loss of one was devastating right so see when you only maybe had a few but again most likely this was a collection of people in a family that watched over it and they would grab a shepherd, someone maybe of the lower class but in the family because they knew hirelings would leave and Jesus talks about a hireling that's not a shepherd and doesn't own the sheep and sees a wolf coming in and leaves, right, and the the wolf scatters. But this word "loss" when we start to think about this shepherd, is a very negative term within livestock business, right? Whether it's a sheep of yours or someone else's, you don't lose them. You go get them dead or alive. Most of my, my uh, cowboying and ranching experience, we had a very small just commercial herd. Um, and, but most of what I did was manage other people's herds. So we had lots, thousands of cows and mom cows and babies all under our care. And we would turn out on uh, open range. And so maybe a quarter million acres out in Nevada, we would just turn cattle loose, you know. And then you got to go find them. It's really the proverbial needle in the haystack at times. But they didn't belong to me. And the thought of losing one of them that belonged to the owner who I was working for shuddered me, right? I, I I wanted to bring back everything they entrusted me to. There was times that something died, something killed a cow or calf out there. And I would do so much as even cut the ear off of them with the ear tag in it to bring back, to say, look, this is what happened. I'm so sorry. Because I turned out a certain number and I wanted to bring them back. And so here this is a very clear understanding. What what shepherd among you has 99 and one is gone, one is lost? They're going to do everything they can. That's what shepherds did and even the Pharisees knew that. Every, Every sheep was very valuable and every sheep that you took to the pasture, you wanted to come home and finding Livestock that are lost require immediate response, immediate response. There would be many times where we would, end of the year, we'd be gathering and you'd come home with about 80%, and that was the first weekend, and then you would ride for 60 days trying to find the last 15 and 10% or so to try to get them home, and eventually you'd hear a phone call and someone say, hey, I saw one of your cows, it's, you know, it's in Oregon. <laughs> Great, where was it? Oh, they were along this road, she was down, she was they were bedded down for the night. I think if you get there in the morning you find a man, first thing you are gone. Immediate response. You gotta go find them. And that's what we see in this verse. This shepherd responds immediately to the lost one. When you hear of someone who is lost, do you respond immediately to it? This was Jesus' is challenging. And so he says, What man among you? Both Jesus and the Pharisees knew the answers. What do you do? You go after, notice in verse 4, you go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Remember, the religious leaders disdained shepherds and most likely didn't care for dirty sheep either. And so this parable is already starting to grind on them. But then Jesus uses another verb. It's translated this way, goes after. Or, or it's a word for seeking, right? We, the Lord seeks. The Godhead is a true seeker, right? And so, so he has uh, this verb here, to go after. And so the question in verse 4 is rhetor- rhetorical because what a true shepherd would do would go after a lost sheep. And even the Pharisees knew that answer. They'd go after them if they're lost. And, and maybe he had his own herd and he hired some low-life shepherd to take care of him. He would hope that that shepherd would go after them immediately. And, and I think what most strikes me as I look at this parable is the lost sheep get the attention of the shepherd. Mm, that's good stuff, isn't it? Lost sheep get the attention of the shepherd. He's after them. He wants to return them. Sheep have very few ways to protect themselves. I mit- spent most of my time with cattle, but I did take care of um, a band of sheep one winter, and I watched wild dogs get in and kill them. But I watched them back up, and the way they only way where they protect, protect themselves was their numbers. And, and the ewes would back in against their lambs and, and the dogs would rip their throats out and they would fall. And another one would stand forward and stamp and do whatever they could because they don't have a lot of defenses to try to fight off. But their defense was in their numbers. And so I, what I see in this parable is you've lost one. He's gone away from the where the one thing that they can protect themselves with and that's gathering together. And you and I know. When lambs leave the flock and don't gather with them anymore, they're defenseless, and they can get themselves in big trouble. And so when we see, whether it's our own children or someone who says, you know what, I'm just not into Jesus, or, or I want to go live in my sin, what do we do? We go after them, right? Lovingly, kindly, because we know the best safety for them is in their numbers. They must be gathered together. Sheep die very easily. Uh, when I took care of them that winter, I thought, these things just looking for somewhere to die. You know, cattle are pretty resilient. They're tough. They're bigger animals. These things just want to die somewhere. And so you're constantly trying to help them not die. And they're easily preyed on. And I think this is what Paul does, he uses that as a picture to protect the churches. He speaks to the elders in Acts chapter 20 of Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Listen to this, not sparing the flock. When false teachers get a hold of the flock, they will devastate them. Paul's warning the elders, you walk with Christ, you Protect and seal and get around this flock and make sure that they are not devoured. Lost sheep capture the shepherd's attention. and The shepherd must do whatever is necessary to recover the lost. And certainly by now, I think the Pharisees and scribes are drawn into this story, whether they like it or not, because it's a true story. This thing happened day after day. Sheep were taken out, and they grazed. And day after day, there were some that were lost, and there was, there was clear evidence that shepherds would go after them. And so the lost must be sought after. They must be found, and they must be brought home. And it takes a shepherd who cares and who acts immediately and with great intensity to go after those who are astray. And clearly, this was not the Pharisees' and scribes' attitude. The next verb there you see is the word found. Look at verse 5. And when he found it. When he has found it. Notice just the little word when. There's no other option, right? <laughs> and then he didn't say, well, maybe when you get around to it, you know, go out there and see if something's around, right? No, no. When he has found it. This is, this is a, a, an attitude of a shepherd. He's not lazy, he's not afraid. He puts a life on a line, right? He's going to go after this lamb. He leaves the 99. He, he puts them in their safety of them. And, and, and there's a lot to talk about that 99. I can hit that later. But he leaves that to go after them. He understands the lay of the land. He understands the cost and the difficulty of going after this. He understands that there's no time limit to his search. He knows the nature of the sheep. He knows they, they have a wandering habits. They're prone to wander, prone to leave the shepherd of their soul at times. And he knows the places that capture them. Every year when we would go to gather um, and you wouldn't get them all home, you go, ah, I bet she's up in this I bet she's up past 15 Mile Creek up there. She's way tucked in there. I found her there before. It's hard to get them out of there. (laughs) And you ride and you ride trying to bring them home. You know what captures them. And though the shepherd can get frustrated with the wayward decisions that are often troubling the sheep, he is relentless to find them, Right? This is the picture that Peter gives us of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself, double pronoun, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, die to the things that cause us to wander. That's what the Lord wants us to do because of the cross, right? And live to God's righteous standard, not our own. But then he says this, for by his wounds we are healed, listen to this, for you, were continually strained like sheep. That's why the hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Anybody resonate with that? Were you prone to stick to the Savior's side all week this week? Or did you wander just a little bit? Maybe you were hurt by something. Maybe you didn't understand something. Maybe something happened to you that was unfair. Were you prone to wander? Did you run to the Savior's side? See, the shepherd knows they're prone to wander. And so the passage says that we are continually strained like sheep. Listen to this. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. See, sheep, when we see the shepherd, we run to them. We don't run away from them. And notice it says in verse 5 that when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder. Depending on the age of the sheep in this Middle East and this time, they range from 20 pounds to 75 but notice, there is no hesitation. There's no thought of the difficulty of head that the that the shepherd has. But he takes the lamb and he puts him on his own body. He bears the weight that that lamb is going through, and all the ground that he covered to find that lamb, he now has to retrace it. He knows that it's a long way back, but you don't see that that. That frustration, and what you see is that he sees this lamb of great value and it drives the shepherd to work hard to return this foal to the rightful owner. It's difficult bringing them home. Many times I find a leppy calf, we'd call them, where a mom had abandoned or a mom got killed out on the range or something like that. And you find this, this, this calf that's not eating grass yet. They are totally dependent on mom's milk. And what are you going to do with it? You're 20, 30 miles from... From home, there's nowhere. She's going to die. That calf's not going to make it. And so you bind its legs together and you throw it up over your saddle horn. You climb on that saddle. Now that horse has to bear the extra weight. And you've got to bear that weight. And when they sit in your lap for 10 hours riding home, all kinds of things happen in your lap from that thing. It's not a clean job. And it's hard. But that calf belongs to somebody else. That lamb belongs to somebody else, and your goal is to get that thing home and rejoice with the owner that one has been brought back. Whatever the cost, the shepherd would do it. Because in the end, the loss is found, and the lamb is returned to the fold. The last verb here I want to look at is rejoice. The response of all of this is amazing, isn't it? shepherd finds this lost lamb. He lays it on his shoulder, and he does this with great joy. And though the trip back is extremely difficult, he's overcome with joy of returning someone. He doesn't think about the, the tons of hours and the labor and all that goes into that and, and maybe the frustration of how would you get yourself here? I remember saying that many times. I had a cow get stuck in a ditch out in the middle of nowhere. I remember riding home. I could not get her out. I remember riding home. Gina. I said, Gina, she's going to die there. She's, it was a huge cow. I I roped, I did everything humanly possible. Me and this one horse to try to get this thing stuck out of a muddy ditch, a wedge like that. And she's going to die tonight. I remember praying all night and rode my way, way back out there to see her dead. And she was gone. (laughs) And she got out. And I remember rejoicing. (laughs) I remember rejoicing. As mad as I was at her, I was rejoicing that she didn't die. (laughs) I loaded her in the trailer and took her to the sale Um, (laughs) when it was all done because she wasn't the smartest animal I'd had in the law. But But I remember rejoicing that I didn't lose that. It was a lot of money. She represented a lot of money. And I was glad that she was free from that. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is just priceless, isn't it? And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Come rejoice with me, for I have found... My sheep, which is lost. Verse 6 is joyful, but it's tagged on to what I call personal or, excuse me, private joy of the shepherd. So, verse 5, remember he finds it there and he puts it on his shoulders. He's rejoicing. Now he turns to a communal rejoicing, a public rejoicing. When one returns to the flock, when one is, is brought back. One who has left has gone, has returned. One who fell into sin has returned. That is the most beautiful thing we can see on this earth, isn't it? Because we look at it and you go, "That's me. I was lost, and the Savior pursued me." And so you're relentless when you go after people, <laughs> right? And maybe you go, "Man, God, my family, I got this kid and all that stuff." Are you relentless on your knees? Sometimes we can't physically jump on a horse and go rope our children. We'd like to. Um, Sometimes you're in your closet and you're begging God for the salvation of that child time and time and time again. And He is not deaf to you, He hears your prayers. And his goal is to win the loss. And I think this is beautiful because now he's found this lamb and he had a private rejoicing. And then he shares it with others. Gene and I have been experiencing some of this with one of our own children. We've been able to share with what we believe God is doing in one of our son's lives. We're, we're just full of joy. And we love to tell you what God is doing. Because the lamb has returned to the full. And though the shepherd is worn out, he puts his job and his life on the line to recover this lost lamb. All is quickly forgotten of the pain that it took because you're so full of joy and you want everyone to know. I remember bringing stuff home that I thought was lost for sure and calling neighbors and said, hey, you know that parable I was missing? I found them. Oh, Scott, that's great. Thank you for telling us that. I'm looking for some. I'll be looking out there for you. You rejoice with others. And can you imagine this scene here? Jesus is standing there giving this parable with tax collectors and sinners And they're the scum. They're the dirt of the people, right? Uh, uh, The people of the dirt. They're they're standing behind Jesus, and they're the ones listening to him. They're the ones wanting to be near to him, verse 1. Then there's the Pharisees, and they're probably obviously standing on the opposite side of the tax collectors and the sinners because they're certainly not going to be near them. And there's Jesus between them. And I think the tension's getting pretty thick as Jesus is telling this parable because those who love what God loves are drawn to him, and it's a wonderful parable, but those who don't, as spotlights on him. And Jesus ends this story with a shepherd who found the lost lamb, and he tells his friends, and he tells his neighbors, come rejoice with me, because I've found the sheep that was lost. I just think it's beautiful. I think there's this impromptu party that breaks out, right? And that's what verse 7 says, right? And I think this is the dagger to those who don't care about the lost and and yet it's so sweet to us that do look at verse seven. I tell you that in the same way, is not the Bible y- loves to use that term in the same way. He when he tells women to submit to their husbands in in uh, First Peter chapter three verse one, he says in the same way, reflecting back to how Christ suffered. And then in, in the husbands verse seven, he says in the same way. We see this all through the scriptures, all referring back to the work of Christ. And so he says in the same way, just like their rejoicing. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, and you know who he's looking at, who need no repentance. And things just got really tense in the group. Just look at some of the wording here. I tell you. I tell you. Now he's bringing this theological and this crystal centric nature to the parable, right? He's here's what he's doing. I think he's doing. He's he's saying, "I'm going to give you firsthand knowledge. I tell you, this is firsthand knowledge. This is Christ explaining the purpose of His ministry. This is Christ who came from heaven to tell what takes place in heaven. That's why I read that. I'm telling you, this is Christ coming from heaven." Telling those on earth what's taken place in heaven. It's stunning, isn't it? It's stunning. It's firsthand knowledge of the response of heaven. He knows that lost sheep are standing behind him. And the shepherd who rescued them is right there with them. I search for them. I found them. I rejoice over them. I, I, I. I I did this with no help from them. I I did not demand them to change their circumstances before I rescued them. I found them in their dying and desperate condition, and I took them in, and I brought them home, and I'm rejoicing over them. That's salvation, isn't it? He does not come to us and say, well, you know, if you can clean yourself up a little bit, if you can get yourself out of the ditch you're in, then I'll rejoice over you. No, he rescues us, and he rejoices. i got to finish here, but just think. Maybe about this time, guess who steps out of the back with all the sinners? Matthew. Maybe he steps just a little closer to Jesus when Jesus is doing this. Maybe next, Mary Magdalene steps forward. Maybe, this this is powerful, isn't it? Maybe the bleeding woman who is unclean as you can imagine, and touches Jesus. Maybe she steps forward. Maybe the deaf and the blind. Maybe the centurion, the Roman, those dreaded Romans. Maybe they're in the crowd too, and they step forward and stand behind Jesus. We were the loss; He has found us. And we rejoice with him. See, this is the way we look at these parables. And you have to ask yourself who do you line up with? Line up with those who need no I have no need of repentance. Or do you line up with those who are completely dependent on the she- se- the shepherd to save them? I trust you are part of that group. I trust you would be in that group with Matthew. It's okay. Tax collector Sinner, prostitute, unclean, that's us. We have nothing good in of ourselves. There's no righteous, no, not one, because there's always that guy out there that thinks I'm righteous, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. It is our great chief shepherd who rescues us. This next section, I'm going to tie into the next one, um, the lost coin and the beautiful woman. And I want you to start thinking about this as we close and sing here. Now he brings a woman in to the parable. Women were just property to the Pharisees. And now he's going to look at it through them. We'll look at that next week. Father, thank you for this time in your word. It goes by so quickly, Lord. We're so captured by your glory and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is truly the great shepherd of our soul. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us line up behind Jesus. In fact, Lord, we want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. We want to rescue the lost. <laughs> As Pastor Paul told us recently, I, he said, I want to help storm the gates of hell. Lord, we need to do that. We need to be elders and church members and people who love Jesus Christ, who go and, and do everything we can on our part to snatch sheep from the jaws of the wolves. And, Lord, we want to rejoice with you when you do those things. We want to stand with you. We are the Matthews. We are the Mary Magdalene's. We are the ones you rescued. So we find great joy worshiping you and following you. We're your sheep, Lord. We are the sheep of your pasture. And we find our home with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.